Hey there, welcome to May. It is it it was gonna be May. It is now May and it will continue to be May. This is Maine Education Matters, your one stopish shopping for all things Maine education related in terms of the Cultural Affairs Committee, in terms of DOE or other places and things happening. My name is Matt Direckhardt. I am your uh, stalwart host through these wonderful times that we're in. Hopefully everyone out there in Maine has um, been okay with the amount of rain we've had recently. I know there's been a lot of roads washed out, a lot of flooding that's been happening. So I hope all of you out there are doing okay and staying safe and healthy with all of the weather that we've had recently and a lot of intense, intense rains and a lot of flooding happening. Speaking of flooding, but a different kind of flooding, this podcast today is um, a little bit of a special episode. I'm doing a lot of these special episodes recently, and maybe they're not that special any, special anymore. But hey, aren't we all special in our own ways? But this podcast is pe- special because uh, of a specific public hearing day coming up on May the 11th. And I wanted to make sure that all of our faithful 17 listeners that are out there who continue to download, subscribe, and just follow along with us here, know know that things are happening and things are happening under my desk as well things are falling off and i didn't really know what was happening and it's making a bit of a racket and that's okay but i wanted to let everyone know that on may 11th uh may 11th of this particular calendar year starting at 1 p.m they're gonna have a public hearing they'll be hearing seven bills and if i had to sum up a theme for this particular day it would be parents rights This is the day of parents' rights. There's been a number of bills that have been given LD numbers over the course of the session, and parents' rights and curriculum transparency are the two ways in which I would probably label these this particular day. And so let's get into these bills. And you'll probably hear some repetition and some repetitiveness because a lot of these bills say the exact same thing. Um. But we'll, we'll we'll go through them and then we'll talk about them as as we either as we go or at the end. I'm not really sure yet. If I were to actually have created a plan for this, that would require work. And as has been long precedent in this podcast, work is I'm not a, not a big fan. So we're gonna start off with the we're gonna start off not in terms of how they're gonna hear the bills, but in terms of how they are labeled by just LD number. So we're going to go numerically. Now, the first bill is possibly my favorite titled bill of the session. I've mentioned it before on this podcast. It was one of those that when I first saw it, I'm like, all right, this one I'm going to keep an eye on. Then the language kind of started to come out. And it, all right, let's see what this says. And it's finally got an LD. It's finally got a public hearing day. And it's on May the 11th. Presented by Representative Samson of Alfred, this is the act to enact the Curriculum Transparency Act. I'm going to say that again. The act to enact the Curriculum Transparency Act. I I just find this bill hysterical in its title. Um, So, be it enacted by the people of the state of Maine as follows regarding curriculum and professional development transparency. And this is where things get really interesting. Um, 
short title may this section be known and cited as the curriculum transpar transparency the school board for each sau shall adopt policies and procedures to ensure the approved curriculum presented is implemented in the classroom without change the approved i think this goes with a fundamental misunderstanding of what curriculum is that it remains unchanged. The standards will remain unchanged. And that needs to be consistent. The expectations for the standards need to be met achieved. But the curriculum is the means by which we achieve those standards. And that's going to differ from district to district and even sometimes schools within the same district. Because there will be different, you know, you might need to have develop and create different classroom environments for different learner based needs. And so to, to say that the curriculum is implemented without change, hmm. class offerings and curriculum materials, the choice of academic class offerings and curriculum materials may not be based on surveys, inventories, or other evaluations, analyses, or assessments of a one. Student, family, or community immutable or other identifying characteristics, including but not limited to race, sex, gender, religion, disabilities, or income. Shocking that sex and gender came into this one, isn't it? Isn't that surprising? Uh, the choice of academic class offerings and curriculums uh, may not be based on surveys, uh, uh, inventories, or evaluations, etc., based on psychological or social-emotional data. Hmm. So why wouldn't we want to have our students you know, doing curriculum work based on their social-emotional needs? No, academics only. Read and write and arithmetic. Back to the basics. <laughs> May not be based on surveys, inventories, or other evaluations, analyses, or assessments of trauma or other psychological or emotional problems. Okay. So we cannot base our, base our, thing, base our curriculum off of surveys that may have done an analysis or an inventory or assessment of trauma or other psychological and emotional problems. So if this curriculum can cause psychological, emotional problems, and there's been a survey about it, we cannot choose those class materials. Here's something interesting that I'd like to point out about this. Most districts' policies, when you talk about things like textbook adoption or curricular adoption, you know what they have? You know what they do in order to make that happen? I'm gonna take I'm gonna give you a minute to 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 answer that question amongst them. What do they do? How does that all happen? Is it happen in a vacuum? How does it happen? It happens by a committee. It happens by a committee of teachers, administrators, counselors, etc., who come together and look at the different possibilities. It's not done in a vacuum. It's not done by some Yahoo in central office. No, they might lead the charge. They might make their recommendations. But in the end, any curriculum materials, especially if they're going to be like, like textbook-based, are going to be based on a, cur a curriculum committee. Now, if you're going to be having a committee, you know what you might need to do at one particular point? You might need to do an inventory. You might need to do a survey or an analysis. So the choice of academic class offerings and class offerings and so we can't even ask for class offerings. We cannot poll our students based on surveys of a student or family community immutable or other identified characteristics. So we can't 
create materials or find materials that are based on, you know, identifying characteristics, including uh, student, family, or community, immutable or other identified characteristics, including but not limited to race, sex, gender, religion, disabilities, or income, psychological or emotional data, or trauma, or other physiological emotional problems. Okay, this is what it can't do. What can it do? What, what kind of curriculum materials can we choose? And how might we choose them? Who does that choosing? And how might we go about doing it? Because it doesn't say that the academic class offerings and curriculum materials have to be based on those things. It doesn't say that. It says the choice of academic class offerings and curriculum materials. So when, com when communities or when uh, committees are choosing these materials, they cannot factor in anything that might have been done or they might want to do in that particular um, survey to see the effect by which this curriculum might have on the social, emotional well-being, psychological well-being, trauma or other emotional well-being, or the fact the, the factors about the extent to which this curriculum, these materials might be representative across the various potential communities within our community, within our educational community. So we can't look at that. Hmm. Uh, these offerings and materials must ensure schools meet the purpose of education as provided in the Constitution of Maine and disseminate the knowledge needed to ensure the rights and liberties of the United States citizens in the state. Hmm. Last, last I knew, the curriculum materials don't disseminate knowledge. Class the, the, the educators do that. Now, class offerings might. That, that's a place where the knowledge is disseminated from, but... So that's class offerings and curriculum materials. Next part, posting and availability of data. Are, are, are you buckled in, folks? Because I hope you are, especially if you're driving. Each SAU shall post at least three years of data showing numbers and percentages of total student capacity at each school and students by grade level academic subject, and percentage level of proficiency based on state assessment scores in the same section as the curricula on the SAU's publicly accessible website. The SAU shall make the data available for inspection at each school within the SAU. Inspection! Um... But again, if it's not mutable to change, approved curriculum presented as implemented in the classroom without change. That's number two. This one, we're now number four. Three years of data showing numbers and percentages of total student capacity at each school and students by grade level, academic subject, and percentage level of proficiency based on state assessment scores. Hey, social studies, visual performing arts, world languages, computer science. Health, PE, you're off the hook. We three years of data showing, based on what? Like academic grade data, attendance data? Because shocking news for you here, different classrooms grade differently. There are some classes, I mean, granted on the end of the transcript, so we're gonna do transcript stuff. Is that what we're going to do? And if we do that, what about those small schools where it's easily, I, the, the, the students who are taking certain classes are easily identifiable? 
Do we post those data? How do we protect those students' rights to not be, I don't know, publicly outed for what they're doing academically? To what extent is the individual classroom data public knowledge? State assessment data is different. But what this says, three years of data showing numbers of percentage of total student capacity at each school and students by grade level, subject, and percentage level of proficiency based on state assessment scores in the same section as the curricula on the SAU's public. So this is it is really just talking about ELA math and science. The rest of you don't need to worry about it. Wonder how under how the ELA math and uh, social studies teach, uh, science teachers feel about that. So we have class offerings can't be done by surveys, can't be chosen by any kind of survey or materials, but that like that posting all the all a lot of things have to be posted that can be might be accurate, might be while they're not, might be available, might be accessible, and but we can't change the curriculum, right? So let's look at number four. I'm sorry, five. Professional development instructional programs. All right. You ready? Are you still buckled up? Because we're still going here. Because we're still going. All administrator, teacher, and staff professional development instructional programs offered to schools that are paid for with state funds, whether offered directly by the department, another state agency, or by a third-party contractor, must be fully transparent and available to the public as follows. A, the department shall make all program materials, videos, links, and resources publicly available at no charge on the department's publicly accessible website. B, all program offerings must be open for public attendance to residents of the state. What? Uh, C, all program offerings must be listed in one location on the department's pub. For, let's go back to B for a second. Wh how? So all program offerings must be open for public attendance? Are, are we going to do it all at the, at the, like the, the convention centers? At the, the, the civic center? To make sure there's space for the public? We're going to go down to Hadlock Field? And have PD? I mean, I'll run the bases, sure, but... Open for public attendance. Now, one way to get around that, I would say, is you make a Zoom link available. You make a Google Meets link available. You make it transparent. A lot of districts have those resources now because they have gone and, you know, they've done the work to make sure that they have those resources and technology. By the way, I'm almost 15 minutes into this podcast. I haven't finished one friggin' bill. But this is a, this one is just like... This one's enormous, and so it's worth talking about more. Uh, next part. All program offerings must be listed in one location on the department's publicly accessible website by date and show the title of the program, description, location, and time. Programs must be publicly posted at least 30 days in advance, with exceptions applying only when the program is added with fewer than 30 days before the date of the program based on emergency as detailed in school. D, the SAU sh unit shall make audio and video recordings of these programs and make the recordings accessible to the public free of charge for at least three years after the event date. If a program recording... This is so big brother. This is so big brother. Where's the trust in the education field with this particular bill? They, people, they'll say, like, oh, we trust our educators. We want to put a faith in tr trust in educators. But you need to make sure that this is available. And let me ask you this, because it says at the very beginning of this one, all administrative, teacher, and staff development, professional development, instructional programs offered to schools that are paid for dot, 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 by a third-party contractor. So if you are, if a person or a 
contractor or a group is coming in to provide professional learning to your school district that you are paying for, they are a private entity providing professional learning to your school district. By this bill, you would have to record what they are doing because that's what it says next. If a program recording was not made or maintained, the program date and description would still be listed on the unit's publicly accessible website for three years after the event. So you're, you're, you, you might have to put, are you trying, are, are they asking to put their, this, these companies, uh, intellectual property on the website? Cause this is if a program, a program recording was not made or maintained. So if, if a district is found to have the capacity to have done it, that we could have made the recordings accessible for a third-party contractor to come in who make their living off of doing these professional development opportunities, if we don't do that, are we going to get in trouble? E, an SAU shall maintain a list showing the date of attendance, name, and position of unit attendee, program name, and program description for the prior three years. Unit shall provide this list upon request and free of charge to residents of the state. F, an SAU may provide on-site program prior to the local school board approving a statewide program. And G, the department shall maintain on the department's publicly accessible website a list of school boards that have approved a statewide program. Now, it goes specifically on to programs provided by third-party contractors. For programs offered to schools by third-party contractors, the department shall maintain data and information on the department's publicly accessible website related to those programs, including but not limited to a breakdown by SAU for each state-funded program showing the amount paid to the third-party contractor by year and by program detailing the public funds spent on program promotion, development, training, local elimination, and other miscellaneous costs for prior three years. Wow. Online portal, number seven. Each SCU shall create an online portal to act as the single source for all student info and data that can be accessed by third-party contractors. The portal must consist of an easy-to-search database, including but not limited to the following. A, all curricula taught by the SAU. B, all source materials used to develop an SAU's curricula. C, all documents and source materials used to develop those documents used by the SAU in the professional development of the school SAU's faculty and staff. D, all speakers and guests used by SAU in its professional development activities. And E, the costs associated with speakers and guests used by the SAU in its professional development activities. This is an unfunded mandate, and this would require a significant amount of regular work done by schools. Because here's, it says, this is all about materials. We talk about instructional materials, right? Can't use those unless they are, you know, 30 days in advance. For you schools who use programs like Epic, or Sora, or Newzella, or all these online places where students have access to read and, and new materials become available and you can use and access them. You can't use those anymore based on this. Because those materials have not been properly either vetted by the board, approved, or et cetera. I, I don't see how you could do that. I think that there's so many logistical, literally like the logistical and... I, there's a lot of flaws in this particular bill. But this feels so big brothery. But that's LD 1129, an act to enact the Curriculum Transparency Act. 
An act. To an act. The Curriculum Transparency Act. I can't do that enough, folks. I, I, I honestly, I can't. Um, all right. That's only one of them. We're now 20 minutes in, so I, I warned you. I warned you. Let's get on to LD 1196, an act to require schools to allow parents and guardians to opt their children, opt out their children with respect to portions of the curriculum. Presented by Representative Nathan Carlo of Buxton, this bill allows a parent or guardian to remove the parent's guardian to child temporarily from a class or other school activity if the parent or guardian considers that class or school activity espouses, promotes, advances, or compels the parent or guardian's child to adopt a viewpoint that conflicts with the viewpoint of the parent or guardian. A parent can do that. A, t- a parent temporarily removing a child from a class or other school activity under the subject shall, de- shall deliver to the teacher of the parent's child a written statement authorizing the removal of the child. If the parent considers that class or school activity, esp- considers that the class or school activity espouses, promotes, or advance, compels the child, parent's child to adopt a viewpoint that conflicts with the viewpoint of the parents. So if you're presenting information in a class that might encourage your child to become an independent, autonomous, solo thinker, and those thoughts, ideas may question or bring into question some of the thoughts, ideals, and principles and values of the parents. No, we are not teaching independent thought here. We are not teaching our students how to independently problem solve. We are not going to teach our students how to do that because if it, if the if if this particular content conflicts with the parents' values, that's what matters the most. Not teaching the students to create, make up their own mind. Not teaching the students how to create argument, debate, discuss, and to be independent thinkers, which was literally what the Founding Fathers wanted. Independent thinkers. The ability to be able to think and believe what we want to believe. And that if a student thinks differently than a parent, that's fine. But a parent... A parent's values are more important than than the students, right? And... If, if this value conflicts with them, then we have to well, protect those kids at all costs, as opposed to the parents understanding that the individual student is an individual citizen of the United States and is entitled to have and make up their own particular minds on things. And if they're provided with a secondary viewpoint, an opposing viewpoint as to yours, they have the exact right to reflect on those, think about those, and should be put into situations where they are able to compare and contrast, evaluate, critique, and then develop their own particular minds, research their own particular ways, and we teach them how to do that so they can make up their own minds. I don't want my kid taking Algebra 2. There's no need for Algebra 2 for the vast majority of the work beyond high school, beyond getting into college, there's really no need for it. Not, not a whole lot of need. Unless you're going to go into certain particular fields in a very specific area. I'd rather my kid take data science, computer science, computational thinking, quantitative reasoning, statistics, probability. I'd rather my kid, because those are things that are applicable across many, 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 many career opportunities, right? Algebra 2, not so much. And that's a deeply held belief, a viewpoint, 
that I as a parent have. Can I remove that kid from Algebra 2? Now, this does say remove the child temporarily from an elementary or secondary school class. So what's temporarily? Especially if there's no Algebra 2 requirement as a graduation requirement in the state standards, which there isn't. I could argue to guidance counselors in schools. No, just give my student. If you have a, if you have three years of math credit, there's no state requirement for that. Yes, it's your local, but it's not required by the state. So come up with a different math opportunity for my kid. Why can't my kid then go and take AP statistics as a third year math? Why not? And have that count. AP computer science. How about that? Which is actually a two, mostly a two year kind of class. They do it really well. That's 1196, folks. Moving up the charts to 1199. This is, this is Madre Car. We're moving up the charts to LD 1199, an act to provide transparency in public school curricula, presented by Representative Rachel Henderson of Rumford. This one's at least short. Bill requires each school board to publish curriculum and library-related materials by October 1st of each year for review by parents. Transparency of curriculum and libraries. Each board shall publish by October 1st. Teaching materials, list of required textbooks, course syllabi. <laughs> I'm going to get back to that one in a second. Teaching materials. I forgot about it. Teaching materials, a list of required textbook, A, B, D. A list of books available in the library and the intended reading age of those books. Intended reading age of those books. So if you have a fourth grade student who's reading at a eighth, ninth grade level, they can't be reading those books because they're not at those age levels. Even though the librarian and library media specialists go to really extensive ideas and, and, and work to make sure that they would be age appropriate while also literary, literarily challenged. Challenging. But let's go to C here. Let's go to see about this transparency of curriculum and libraries. Each school board shall publish by October 1st of each school year for review by parents the following. Course syllabi. Okay. That's, I think that's completely reasonable. I think schools should have their curriculum public. People know what they're, what they're, what they're teaching and learning. If they have questions, they can contact their, their, their teachers. And if they don't like those answers, talk to the principal. If they don't like that answer, go to the curriculum coordinator or superintendent then. Course syllabi. Lesson plans. This is where I start to have a bit of a problem because lesson plans adjust. A lesson plan that is set in October 1st that is intended for to be done in January or October may very likely change as a result of the classroom environment. So the overall course syllabi and even the curriculum map that dictates by unit Here's what you're going to be learning over this court, this chunk of four to eight weeks. Here, this chunk, four to eight weeks. But then giving the teachers and the uh, interventionists, et cetera, the flexibility to bob and weave within to get them there. Those are the, what the lesson plans do. Those are the day-to-day -day stuff. You want those posted? The week-to-week day-to-day stuff? Okay. And are you ready for the final one? Course syllabi? I'm with you. Okay, that's totally fine by me. Lesson plans? That seems a bit extreme. But what also has to be published by October 1st of each school year, according to this LD, according to this bill? Tests. So if you have a test, that's got to be publicly available for parents to review 
If, and if a test is available for parents to review, you know who else is going to review it? You know. I don't need to say it. You know. It, it, it ain't. It ain't the local. It ain't. It ain't your. It ain't your dogs and cats and hamsters and parrots and ferrets and boa constrictors and wallabies. It ain't them. If the tests are available. Once again, flaws. I see where they're coming from. I see why they want this. I also see that it's being completely and totally unnecessary. All right. Moving up the charts, LD1518, presented by Representative Thorne of Carmel, an act regarding the rights of parents to withdraw their children from public school classes or activities that include certain controversial topics. So, Bill allows a parent to remove the parent's child if the class or school activity conflicts with the parent's religious or moral beliefs, if the parent considers the class or or school activity to espouse, promote, advance, or compel the parent's child to adopt controversial viewpoints as defined in the bills. So what are these viewpoints? Because they actually define them. They define these controversial viewpoints here. Let's talk about what they are. A, the individuals of one race, color, sex, or national origin are morally superior to individuals of another race, color, sex, or national origin. So, we are required by state statute to integrate into our instruction discussions of Maine Native Studies, African American Studies, and History of Genocide. These are requirements done by, the, I think, the last legislature or the 129th. If we were to teach these things, if we were to teach the genocide, I'd like someone to name me a genocide an example of a genocide that had nothing to do that one person's race, color, sex, national origin, or religious ideology were superior to another. Where it wasn't that, where that didn't happen. That's all genocide is. It's all that's what it all is. It's the elimination of a group of people based on their race, color, sex, national origin, and also oftentimes religious affiliation, religious belief. How would we do this? How would we teach that? Just to say, well, it happened, but we can't really talk about why. Can't talk about the motivations behind the National Socialist Party in Germany. You can't really talk about, you know, what Cortez did with the Aztecs or DeSoto or any of the Spanish discovery, quote-unquote, discoverers, how they led to origin based upon the fact that they were non-European or Christian based on what there was. That's what the Crusades were. Spanish Inquisition. Can't talk about that. Or we could say, well, the Spanish Inquisition happened. It wasn't expected. If you know what I'm referencing, I love you. But the Spanish Inquisition happened. Okay. Why did it happen? Who drove it? Who started it? What was the, what were the motivations? What, why would what would cause this horrible thing to happen? Well, we can't talk about that. That's only just part A, folks, and it goes down to H. B. An individual by virtue of individual, individual's race, color, sex, or national origin is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. That an individual by virtue of the person's race is this. Uh, 
where is this happening? That it's saying that individ that an individual because of this is inherently right because they have this trait that any individual because they have this trait is inherently this. No one's saying that. That might be an interpretation of what people are saying, an inference that people are making, but that's not what's actually being said. What's being said is there might be systems that are in place that treat people differently, and the people who are treated differently are being treated differently based on their race, sex, gender, color. I mean, look at the thing called a meritocracy. There's a whole belief that America, that we are the U.S. is a meritocracy. Okay, let's say that it is. If we were a true meritocracy in that you're a, people were able to advance, succeed, grow, etc., based on the based on merit alone, why is there a wage gap between men and women? Why does that exist? Because if we lived in a meritocracy, that wouldn't happen. And that wage gap persists. You can look at current uh, U.S. Department of Labor statistics. It's right there. And besides for just men and women, the disparities get even more so when you factor in things like race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and also gender identity, sexual orientation. Those disparities get even more so. So where is this meritocracy? Where is it? We, we have it. Great. Where's the evidence of that? And, and we have these these evidence points over here, which seem to conflict with that. How do those? How can we square that circle that we have a meritocracy and these things exist? Right. But an individual is inherent. No one's saying this. It's structures that have been created by people over time that are doing this. That's just part B. C, an individual's moral character or status is either privileged or oppressed, is necessarily determined by the individual's race, color, sex, or national origin. I don't think anyone's saying that it is necessarily determined, but I, but I think people are saying, you know what? There are structures and systems that are in place that give people advantages over others. They, ha they exist. They're there. The data show it. You can see it. We're just going to pretend it's not there? No one's saying that the... Or maybe not no one. I won't say no one. What I'm hearing from a conversations like this is more like these systems exist and they were created during a time and during times when you know racism was more was incredibly prevalent with, with slavery or um, the Reconstruction era or uh, during... You know, immigration movements during uh, segregation and Jim Crow laws. You know, it's it's always been a thing. It's always been a been a component here, and those things are going to have an impact. Those systems and structures that we put into place systemically to allow some people to do some things and allow others to not do those things. That's going to have an impact over time. You know, I mean, at a very individual level. If you were to say, like, hey, you know what's not a bad thing to do? Have a drink a teaspoon of mercury every day. I'm not endorsing that, but I'm saying, what if that was? What if that was a systemic expectation people could do? Have a teaspoon of mercury every day. What would that do? 
Would that have an impact? So a decision that was made could have an impact on things? Yeah, decisions that get made have impacts. And then what we have to do is we have to look at those impacts and determine the value. History is not just about studying the facts. It's about studying the impact of those facts. It's about studying whether those facts and acts had impacts. And if we don't study those facts, impacts, if we don't study those, we don't know the value. And if we don't know the value, then we don't have the meaning. And if we don't have the meaning, then why are we studying it? Just because it happened? We study history to learn from it. Those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it, right? It's not just about the facts. It's about the value, the lessons we learn from it. And the lessons always don't come with just a what happened. They come with a why and what can we do about it going forward. How might we prevent those things from happening? I'm only on D now. Individuals of one race, uh, so controversial viewpoints mean this. Those are three things that controversial viewpoints mean. A D, individuals of one race, color, sex, or national origin cannot and should not attempt to treat others without regard to race, color, sex, or national origin. Okay. I just, individuals of one race, color, sex, cannot and should not attempt to treat others without regard to race, color, sex, or national origin. So we can't single out or talk about race, religion, and talk about the impact that they might have on individuals and society, but we also, and individuals, of one race, color, can, cannot and should not attempt to treat others without regard to race, color. This is a confusing sentence. And maybe I'm just a moron. Maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't understand it, which is entirely possible. There's a soundbite for you. Go on and clip that and, make, and put that out there for you. E, an individual by virtue of the individual's race, color, sex, or national origin bears responsibility for or should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment because of her actions committed in the past by other individuals of the same race, color, sex, or national origin. I agree with this one, that an individual, because they are a certain race, because of the actions of some people in the past who they had no commitment to, no stance with, no connection to, maybe circumstantially, you know, by, by either family, by proxy, by environment, etc., they didn't have anything to do with the atrocities of the past, that they should be blamed for it. And I don't remember hearing anyone saying, you, individual living right now in 2023, are directly responsible and should feel bad and should be blamed for, const for, for slavery remaining in the Constitutional Convention and in the, in the original draft of the Constitution, not, be, not being abolished. You should feel bad about that because you could have done more. I don't have a DeLorean with a flux capacitor that can go up to 88 miles per hour. I ain't Doc Brown, folks. I can't do that. No one can. We can't go back in time. And no one person should make someone else feel bad for that. What one person can do, though, is point out, hey, there were some terrible things that happened. And when they happened, here's the impacts that those things had on our society, on the world, on people, and how those impacts are continuing to sustain or the long-term impacts of those actions may have had on individuals, structures, societies, people, a nation, etc. And those, some of those systems are still in place today. And what can we do about that? 
do we want those impacts to continue or can we work to address those? Or are we just going to say, nope, those things happened and then nothing else? We're just going to ignore the rest of it and just come back to today because I, I didn't have anything to do with it. So I'm not to blame, so I can't have to look at it. No, we study the history. We study the Constitution to learn about the impacts that it all has. And the, we, put the, we assign the value to it. I'm fired up, folks. Again, controversial viewpoint means any ideas that espouse, promote, or advance or compel students to believe any of these following concepts. That an individual, by virtue of an individual's race, color, sex, or national origin, should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment to achieve diversity, equity, or inclusion. Okay. An individual, by virtue of the individual's race, color, sex, or national origin, should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment to achieve... So this is this idea... This comes with the idea that, oh, if one particular race or gender or ethnicity or a combination thereof have certain privileges and rights in this country and others don't, the idea that by giving it's, – it's, it's such a false narrative because you're not – by giving people equal rights, you're not taking away the rights of others. They st People who have the rights still – no one's taking away those rights. It's just saying, no, everyone else – has equal access to those same rights. Everyone does. Isn't that the meritocracy that we so want? That everyone has access to those things. So that if we have parity across race, gender, identity, sexual orientation, ethnicity, national origin, religious ideology, etc., we have parity over all those things, then can we not say that we are going to have that meritocracy, that, that we're going to have our decisions, our, our people and things, people can be, um, can advance and whatnot in this world based on their merits and what they do and the content of their character, so to speak. It's not taking rights away. You already have them. But what does it do? It increases competition. It makes it harder for those who have had those rights all along that they've got to put in a little more work. They've got to put in a little more time because the competition has just gotten a whole lot stiffer. But that's the point of a meritocracy. Right? So they say they want this and then actively work to prevent it. which gets really fun in part H. And I'm going to jump down to H and come back to G. Virtues such as merit, excellent, a strong work ethic, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial color blindness are racist or sex. Okay, racial color blindness. <clears throat> I'm not an expert on um, color blindness or race, ethnicity, and how it impacts and its impact on the world. I'm, not, I'm no expert on that, and I, and I don't purport to be. So let's talk about who are. Uh, according to from an, uh, an article from the Association of Psychological Science, uh, 2012, authors Evan P. Applebaum, Michael I. Norton, and Samuel R. Summers, uh, in, from the Harvard, Harvard Business School, Sloan School of Management, MIT, etc., they 
put an article together called Racial Color Blindness, colon, Emergence, Practice, and Implications. So, colorblind, they say, they, they define colorblindness. They, they talk about it. Quote, colorblindness is rooted in the belief that racial group membership and race-based differences should not be taken into account when decisions are made, impressions are formed, and behaviors are enacted. The logic underlying the belief that colorblindness can prevent prejudice and discrimination is straightforward. If people or institutions do not even notice race, then they cannot act in a racially-based manner. This notion that colorblindness has the capacity to, quote, short-circuit the typical process by which bias emerges was epitomized by the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts' opinion in a 2007 case involving a local school district's effort to achieve diversity. Quote, the way to stop discrimination on the base of race is to stop discriminating on the base of race. From parents involved in community schools versus Seattle School District 2007. End quote. Now, this, this, this study talks about, this report, uh, research article talks about this. And let's talk about some of what they are. Uh, interpersonal colorblindness, organizational colorblindness, educational colorblindness, legal colorblindness, and societal colorblindness. And I'm not going to read all of these, but let's talk about a couple of them, especially how they might um, be relevant. Interpersonal. Per, uh, quote, perhaps the most compelling critique of the colorblind approach is the fact that people do notice race when perceiving others. Perceptual differentiation of race occurs rapidly in less than one-seventh of a second and emerges as nearly as, as six months of age, according to a study from uh, that Barham, Zivlamy, and Hodes, 2006, and Ito and Erlen in 2003 that are referenced in this article. Recent work has highlighted the prevalent tendency for people to avoid acknowledging what they, quote, see, or that they see racial differences during social interactions. They did a they they did a they presented white participants in this in, in, a, in a particular study presented white participants with an array of photos of people half of whom were black and half of whom were white and challenged respondents to guess which of the photos a partner was holding by asking a few questions as few questions as possible and although asking about race was an obvious way to home in on the target photo many participants avoided mentioning race despite knowing that their performance on the task would suffer a tendency most evident when their partner was black. Although this tendency was to sidestep mention of race may stem from a well-intentioned desire to avoid bias, such colorblind behavior has been found to result in various negative social consequences. For example, ironically, for example, white individuals who avoid mentioning race appear more biased in the eyes of black observers than do white individuals who openly talk about race. So perspective matters. If a white person is not talking about race, that becomes more obvious to those to people who are, who are, are black. That, that, that's what this is basically saying. Recent work has also suggested that beyond efforts to avoid mention of race, de-emphasizing race more broadly as an approach to racial diversity can shape individuals' attitudes toward racial outgroups. So if we don't talk about it, it becomes worse. Educational colorblindness. For recent years, it has, quote, it's become clear that manifestations of colorblindness cascade down various levels of the U.S. educational system. 
It is reflected by the ways in which districts are permitted to regulate the diversity of their schools, reinforced by standard school curricula that portray a generalized cultural identity but leave group differences unaddressed and routinely exhibited by teachers seeking to model equality in their classrooms by emphasizing that, quote, race does not matter. Recent psychological research has cast doubt on the utility of colorblindness in educational contexts. A study presented from Affelbaum, Pawker, Summers, and Ambadi in 2011 presented elementary school children with a story about a teacher who either endorsed colorblindness or did not. Children then read about a series of schoolyard conflicts, some of which involved instances of racial discrimination. And children who were initially exposed to the colorblind story compared with the children who were not were later less likely to identify bias when it had clearly occurred and tended to describe instances of discrimination in a manner that seemed less serious to certified teachers. Such findings are troubling. The fact that colorblindness makes children less likely, less likely to identify overt instances of bias could lead people to mistakenly conclude that colorblindness is an effective tool for reducing bias, perhaps one factor contributing to its continual support and proliferation in the educational system. So, when I see in this parental rights regarding controversial viewpoints, H, virtues such as merit, excellence, a strong work ethic, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial color blindness. Racial color blindness is being ascribed as a virtue. Virtues such as these and racial colors blindness that racial color blindness is racist we cannot talk about that and that is a controversial topic once again and i and i i don't hate to repeat myself on this one not all opinions are equal if you have an opinion a belief that Hey, I don't see race. I'm colorblind. I don't see any of that. So, and by acknowledging the differences that we have, we're thereby exacerbating racism and bias and prejudice. The science doesn't back that opinion up. That is a perspective that is only supported by other people's perspective but not necessarily been studied reviewed and because when you look at it when you look at studies like i just example one just now when you look at right when you identify what it is you identify the differences which are which are great and which are necessary and also uncontrollable when you when you call them out When you name it, when you see it and say it, it becomes present. And when it becomes present, when it becomes a thing, then you can acknowledge that things have happened. You can acknowledge that it's there. You can acknowledge that. And then what you can do is going forward, if there were things that happened beforehand, 
that impacted that a particular group, you can work to fight against it in an obvious, overt, transparent, and intentional way. Virtues such as merit, excellence, a strong work ethic, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial colorblinds are racist or sexist or were created by individuals of a particular race, color, sex, or national origin to oppress individuals of another race, color, sex, or national origin. This, I mean, this, this, this particular line is just, is just ridiculous. You know, if you, and if you really cared about colorblindness... Does that same does that same mindset and approach transfer and translate over to gender identity? You don't see gender, right? People can have different gender. You don't see race. You don't see ethnicity. You're colorblind. But what about gender? You only see two. There's a lot more than two. But you only see the two. So you're going to be narrow visioned here, but openly visioned. You know, we are completely blind over here. I don't see any of that. I just see the person, the individual, and celebrate the individual if you fall into one of these two categories. You see, this is where it, where I get I get I get I, I get bothered. It just it just it's feels like hypocrisy. In Part G, an individual should feel discomfort, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress on account of the individual's race, color, sex, or national origin. How could you legislate feelings? This bill is trying to legislate feelings from people who coined the term snowflakes or not individuals, but people who ascribe to certain you know, political ideologies and, and stances coined the term snowflakes are now trying to legislate feelings. Okay. That's four of the seven. We're more than halfway done. LD-1589, a resolve directing the DOE to adopt rules prohibiting teachers and public schools from engaging in political, ideological, and religious advocacy in the classroom, presented by Representative Smith of Palermo, several co-sponsors. This resolve directs the State Department Board of Education, State Board of Education, not DOE, State Board of Education, to adopt major substantive rules prohibiting teachers and public schools from engaging in political, religious, or ideological advocacy in the classroom or from introducing any controversial subject matter that is not germane to the topic of the course being taught with penalties for violations up to and including termination of the teacher. This resolve requires the State Board of Education to provide written notice of the rules to all effective teachers, parents, and students, and for teachers to receive annually at least three hours of continuing teacher education to instruct the teachers on the rules. Three hours of teacher education to instruct teachers on these rules. Clearly, these people have never been to professional development. They've never planned professional development. Three hours? That's half of a workshop day. The resolve directs the DOE to request professional teacher organizations and unions to voluntarily adopt an educator's code of ethics and professional responsibility, which they have, that incorporates the rules that specifically prohibits teachers in kindergarten to grade 12 instruction from using the classroom for political indoctrination. The resolve requires the Joint Standing Committee of the Legislature, having jurisdiction over education and cultural affairs, to report out legislation to incorporate the rulemaking described in this resolve into statute.
there are policies and procedures in place to help it help this. There are also um, rules and constitutional protections for this. Um, you're now getting into what teachers can and cannot say. They're talking about the word indoctrination and advocacy. This is a very slippery slope because a it is very possible that a teacher who is presenting an ideology that is different or quote-unquote controversial or in contrast with a personal student's or a parental family's perspective point of view, the presentation could be interpreted as advocacy. How do you monitor that? How do you do this? Because sometimes, if you've ever played the game, some people call it telephone or operator, right? You get like 30 people in a circle and one person says a sentence, they can only say it one time, right? Say it one time to the next person, they whisper it, and that, that, that sentence goes all the way around to the final person, and then when the, the final person has the, the statement, they say it out loud and you see how much it's changed because perception, how we perceive things, how we hear things, we don't always hear everything exactly the way we should, right? So perhaps uh, a, a statement that was made in a way that was informational was then interpreted advocacy. How do we control for that? How do we protect our teachers in that realm, in that way? Because that's huge. Two more. LD 1643. An act regarding instructional materials, surveys, analyses, evaluations, and events at public schools. Presented by Representative Sampson of Alfred. This is the second one that she's presented on this particular slate. The summary of this bill requires SAUs to make all instructional materials available for inspection by the parents or guardians of the children enrolled in a school of an SAU. Bill prohibits students from being required to submit a survey, analysis, or evaluation that reveals certain information. Bill requires SAUs to adopt certain policies and notify parents or guardians of those policies. Bill requires SAUs to notify parents or guardians of certain events. Yeah, so these are, the summary says all this stuff, right? So let's get into what it actually says, right? Because here's, there, there's some language in here that's sneaky. And I'm going to say sneaky. And I'm going to tell you why in a second. And under what would now be a section 4015 4, 4, under 20A, instructional materials, surveys, analyses, evaluations, and events. Definitions as used in this section, unless the context otherwise indicates the following terms of the following meanings. And there's, there's three. There's personal information, meaning individually identifiable information, first and last name, physical address, phone number, social security number. Instructional material means instructional content that's provided to a student regardless of its format, including printed or representational materials, audiovisual materials, materials in electronic or digital formats. Does not include academic tests or academic assessments. Okay. Instructional material. That's pretty clear. Now remember, the title of this is Instructional materials, surveys, analyses, evaluations, and events, right? A was instructional material. C was personal information. B, invasive physical examination. Huh? I thought this was about the whole purpose of this bill 
was regarding instructional materials, surveys, analyses, evaluations, and events at public schools. Why is invasive physical examination in this bill? It means any medical examination that involves the exposure of private body parts or any act during such examination that includes, are you ready? Any medical examination that includes incision, okay, insertion, or injection into the body does not include a hearing, vision, or scoliosis screening. Why is this here? Why is this slid in here? First of all, would taking a student's temperature using a typical mouth thermometer be considered insertion? But let's let's talk about why this is really here. Let's get talk about this is a sneaky way to prevent schools from providing vaccines. Any medical examination that involves injection into the body, any flu vaccine, whooping cough vaccine, COVID vaccine, this is sneaky to put this into this one. That's what that means. So inspection of instructional materials by parents and guardians and SAU shall make all instructional materials, including teacher material, teacher, teacher's manuals, films, tapes, or other supplementary material that is used in connection with any survey analysis or evaluation as part of the program administered by the department or the school SAU, available for inspection by the parents or guardians of the children enrolled in the school of the SAU. Teacher's manuals? Films, tapes, other supplementary material that the parents might not have access to because... The, the copyright that we have purchased it for are for educational and student purposes only, not necessarily for parents' consumption. Uh, number three, limits on surveys, analyses, or evaluations. A student may not be required as part of any program administered by the department or SAU to submit to a survey, analysis, or evaluation that reveals information concerning the political affiliations or beliefs, mental or psychological problems, sexual behavior attitudes of the student... Illegal, antisocial, self-incriminating, or demeaning behavior of a student or a student's families, critical appraisals of other individuals with whom the student has close family relationship, legally recognized privilege or analogous relationships, such as those of lawyers, physicians, and ministers, religious practices, affiliations, or beliefs of the student and the student's family, or income other than required by law to determine eligibility for participation in a program for receiving public financial student. In other words, the student may not be required. Not sure they ever were. But I think this is directed right at the main integrated youth health survey. Seems like it. Not all students are required to take it, but most do. Because it's the, the area is what it is. And students take it. They don't. But this is saying uh may not be required to do that. It does not apply to a survey administered to a student in accordance with the federal IDEA, Individual Disabilities Education Act. And the development of a whole bunch of local policies concerning student privacy, parental access to information, administration of certain physical examinations to minors. A parent can review the third-party survey before it's administered, distributed by a school to the student. By a school, does that also mean by a classroom? By a classroom teacher? Can a classroom teacher do a survey? Uh, 
I tell you. This is um, notification of event. I this one is very similar to a one that was previously done, but the one that's really different about this one, um, very similar to the previous. That you know, an act to enact the curriculum transparency act. That one, but this one slides in this whole thing about invasive physical examination so i'll be very curious to hear what they have to say about this one and why this is even in there when it doesn't feel like it belongs it kind of feels like one of those like slippery little additions to from a from people who have been very much opposed to any kind of vaccinations immunizations finally and we've reached the final one for may 11th LD 1800, an act regarding parental rights and education, presented by Sp Senator Keem or Keim, I never get the name right, of Oxford. Several co sponsors, some of whom were on, there's one of whom was on the um, Education Committee, Senator Lyman. No, not Senator Lyman. Sorry. Representative Lyman. All right. The summary of this bill, this was a, has, a, has a few pages to it, removes provision that parents are jointly entitled to the care, custody, control, service, and earnings of the children. The bill provides that each parent has the fundamental right to make decisions regarding the upbringing, education, and well-being of the parents' children. Parents' children and the parent is entitled to access all information regarding the school activities of the parent's minor child. The bill requires SAUs to notify parents of certain activities relating to student health and well-being and also to adopt procedures related to parental notification about involvement in and addressing concerns about a student's mental, emotional, physical health, or well-being. Parents' rights. Okay. So a parent has the universal rights over their children. All the time. No matter what. If a student feels unsafe in their home because their parent is physically, mentally, or emotionally abusive, the school can do nothing about it. Right? School can't do anything about it. Because the parents are not going to say, not going to allow that. Oh yeah, no, go ahead, talk to your counselor about uh, how terrible I am. Sometimes these conversations need to be private, and they don't need to involve the parents. Because here's another thing: yes, a parent has say over their kids' lives. Of course they do. But it's also forgetting a fundamental truth that students and kids who are going to our public schools are protected by our laws and by the Constitution of the United States. They are afforded the same rights. They might not be able to vote. But depending on how old you are, you could still work. I mean, do you need a work permit to be a farmer? How old do you have to be to, to work in a farming? I don't know. You're pretty young, I think. So, a parent is entitled to access all information regarding school activities of the parent's minor child. A parent is entitled to review all teaching or instructional materials requiring textbooks, syllabi, lesson plans, and other teaching aids in the classroom of a parent's minor child. Honestly, if I were a, 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 a person in the classroom, I, if this was happening, I'm like, I don't do lesson plans. 
I don't make lesson plans. I use my assessment, my assessment data, and then I plan from there. And I, I go from there, but I don't necessarily have a full-on lesson plan. Sorry. Each parent has a fundamental right to make decisions regarding the upbringing, education, and well-being of that parent's children. Of course they do. They're the legal guardian. By the way, this this bill is fundamentally opposed to saying words like natural guard, like legal guardian or caretaker, or you know, it's about parent. But what if it's not a parent? What if it's a grandparent taking care of the kid because the parents aren't in the picture anymore for one reason or another? You know, it. I mean, this 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 bill gets into a lot of the stuff that's been done regarding, um, you know, counselors, mental health, and you know, students who might need someone to talk to at school who's who is not feeling safe at home or feeling like they can't talk about these things at home and they need a place to do be, say it because one they need to feel welcomed and two they need to feel safe and keeping students feeling safe in schools is more than just academic it's keeping them alive so maybe encouraging the students to find a safe person talk about that and then work with them over time to bring the parents into the conversation but maybe not immediately but to bring but the with the intention of bringing them in is a good goal to have. But that's also the right of the student. If the student's not feeling safe, if the student doesn't feel like their viewpoints at home or their perspectives or the, the things that are that they're dealing with would be, well, if a parent at home is very much opposed to mental health, uh, therapy and the like, that student might not get it, but the student needs it. So what happens if, if things don't, go that way and, and and people question these things if a concern raised under the subsection one remains unresolved the parent may a request the commissioner appoint a special magistrate Ooh, magistrates to determine facts relating to the dispute over the sau procedure or practice consider information provided by the sau and render a recommended decision for resolution to the state board within 30 days after receipt of the request by the parent Special magistrate must be a member of the bar of the state in good standing who has at least five years' experience in administrative law. State board must approve or reject recommendation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They could also bring civil action against the SAU in the district court or superior court of the city or county where the SAU is located. The court may grant equitable relief as is necessary to remedy the effects of conduct that it finds to exist and is prohibited under this section, including but not limited to declaratory judgment and injunctive relief. A court may reward award damages and shall award reasonable attorney's fees and court costs to a parent who discovers declaratory judgment or injunctive relief. Yep, let's tie up our school districts in litigation. Let's cause those the an entire now administrative side of a district to deal and budgetary side to deal with lawsuits yep i think if you if you have a legitimate case bring your lawsuit you can already do that happens all the time and has been happening for since the advent of public education well folks I've crossed the hour mark into this particular particular
public hearing. And if you think that's long, wait until you see what happens on May 11th. Because that's the day where they're hearing all of these. All of them. All, those were seven bills. Seven bills over 64 minutes. You do the math on that. I don't, I don't like math, and I want to opt my kids out of math. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. About opting my kids out. I don't really like it that much. But that's May 11th. You want to know why I spent an entire episode talking about this stuff? Well, now you do know why. That's, this is why I wanted to have this particular episode to make sure that it was there and to give people plenty of time to read these bills, read the language that's in them yourself, and if you feel strongly about them, submit testimony. Make your voice heard. Do I think any of these are going to pass? No, I don't, not for a second. I think it's going to be an exercise in hearing people out, Carry the same thing over and over again. And then it's not going to pass because the majority in the committee politically will not support these things. I don't, I don't see them doing it. I don't see it. But just because the political numbers aren't there doesn't mean they don't need to hear your voice. Complacency can lead to a very vocal minority being able to control the narrative. And if they can control the narrative, given that politics is not just what is, but it's what is interpreted, what is inferred, and what is implied, that can that can be a big deal. That can that can change that can change things. So they need to hear. And they need to make sure that they're that they're not that 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 a minority is not driving this, but that the majority the opinion on this is supported as well. Whatever your viewpoint, if you disagree with me on my analyses of these, that's fine. I would love to engage in a conversation. Would love to. An actual debate, not just individuals monologuing, but an actual discussion. I enjoy those because that's the beauty of our country, is the ability to have difficult conversations and to come to resolution. But the resolution needs to be based on facts based on evidence, not a feeling, not a belief. If you have a belief, fine, is it based on evidence? Evidence matters. You can say, and I've said this before, but you can say like, well, no, you can find data or evidence supporting any opinion. No, you can't. You can't. That is a falsity. Because if you're doing that, you might be finding bad data or false evidence in support of what you're saying. And there's a difference between, you know, true evidence and true facts versus false evidence and false narratives. There are differences. All opinions aren't, I've said this before, all opinions aren't equal. An opinion without evidentiary fact behind it is just that, an opinion. Whereas an opinion with evidentiary fact behind it is value. It has value to it because there's more behind it than just, well, I think. No, no, it's not just me think. It's a we think. It's a collective. 
So that's May 11th. I thank you all very much for sticking with me for closing on 70 minutes of me rambling on about this stuff. But this is an important day. And, and a lot of the things that I've been worried about and concerned and seeing for this particular session, you see it happening at school boards all over the place with questioning uh, uh, libraries and books and parents' rights here what, and that they supersede the students' rights here, here and there. It, it's, it, it's everywhere. And it's gaining a lot of press. It's gaining a lot of knowledge. It's gaining a lot of, not less, it's gaining a lot of press. It's gaining a lot of noise. I mean, what I mean. And if you disagree with that noise, that noise is also putting together legislation to change state statute. And it's not happening here in Maine right now. It doesn't mean it wouldn't. It doesn't mean it couldn't. Your voice matters. Exercise it. That's the end of this particular episode of Main Education Matters. I thank you very much for listening. I thank you very much, as always, for continuing with us down this journey. This has been a busy session. I know they are trying to wrap things up. I'm going to come back with another preview of this particular week. And I'm also going to do some reviews of some of the things that have happened. But for now, sit in the, sit in the hot tub of... warmness about enacting curriculum transparency enjoy thanks for listening we appreciate you very much take care bye